One day on a dark and stormy night in London, me and my mates were in the pub having a chat. Like, our lives were so good and now they're so boring. What can we do to make our lives brilliant again? Like, well, what are we good at? We're good at running tours. Where do we like to live? Well, we'd like to live in Thailand. Fuck it. Let's start a tour company in Thailand. I was in bed one morning, phone rang and I picked it up. I didn't expect it to be a True Travels potential customer because we didn't expect yeah. to have any customers. Yeah. So I picked up the phone like, hello? Like, is this True Travels? Like, yes. Yes, it is. How can I help? How many people are going to be booked on this tour? Good question. I think we've got about seven booked on it now yeah we're expecting maybe 10 12 people tickets were super cheap they were like 375 pounds right for a one-week tour in thailand yeah so the 15th of december tour we got this first customer ellie was her name she said yeah I'd like shout to- out to ellie what's up shout out to ellie like i'm appreciative of my life like i've managed yeah. to forge this dream lifestyle for myself out yeah. of just some weird pipe dream that some back yeah. had because we didn't like london it's because we didn't follow what society told us to do everyone's like oh, it's such a big risk you're gonna go to thailand you're gonna give up your job you're gonna give up your girlfriend your house in London and you're going to move to Thailand and do this thing. How Pretty much sure. would I have regretted it if I hadn't oh done it? Hello and welcome to another episode of the podcast Hostel. I'm your host, Milan Militinovic. That's what's up, baby. How you doing? I'm recording this on Christmas Eve 2023, trying to put a little bit of Christmas cheer into this little intro <laughs> to uh, Joe Fallon's episode, which I've titled From Broke Backpacker in Thailand to Seven-Figure Travel Entrepreneur. He's had quite an incredible journey. I'm uh, very glad to call <clears throat> Joe a good friend of mine. Uh, it's kind of a testament to um, the kind of relationships that you can build um in these events, in Nomad Cruise, uh, which we did together. I'm currently recording this in Brazil, so I'm still on the cruise in spirit. I'm just on land, uh, but we're still hanging out together, and it's quite an amazing experience. But Joe Fallon has run a a few travel companies very successfully. Uh, He sold True Travels um, and made a great exit there, and now he's got a new venture, Digital Nomad adventures quite interesting this travel company is more targeting digital nomads entrepreneurs or even just people that are looking to become digital nomads and entrepreneurs Uh, these are adventure experiences uh, that you have with an amazing group of people you share um, the travel together you sleep together and um you build very powerful bonds and through all of this there is also an educational and self-development process me and joe talked a lot off air about digital nomad adventures and the potential that it has um i think it's just an amazing company and i'm really looking forward to jumping on a digital nomad adventure myself in thailand Um, but he's offered us a very cool deal for all of our listeners um, or our viewers, if you're on YouTube, if you can see me, um, he's offered us 10% off any digital nomad adventure. If you use the promo code podcast hostel, uh, you will get 10% off. That's the promo code podcast hostel for any digital nomad adventure product. I'm uh, very much looking forward to seeing you guys on these adventures if you like the channel if you like what we're doing if you think this is interesting if you think i'm interesting 
um, <laughs> if you think this is all cool, the best way to support us and the channel is to jump on one of these digital nomad adventures. And uh, hopefully we'll see you on one of these soon. And uh, why don't we get into the interview and um, let's hear what Joe Fallon has to say and what his life story and life adventure has been thus far. Hello and welcome to the podcast Hostel. I'm your host, Milan Milutinovic. We're recording this live at the Nomad Cruise NC12, the digital nomad cruise that brings about 400 digital nomads from Tenerife to Brazil. And I've met a very special and interesting character. We met in Tenerife a few days ago and we've become old friends since then. <laughs> His name is Joe Fallon. He's a long lost cousin of Jimmy Fallon. Yeah, so I've <laughs> not quite. Huh? <laughs> that sounded funnier when I planned the joke. <laughs> Didn't quite <laughs> land on air, but that's okay. <laughs> Why don't you tell the people a little about yourself? What's your 60 second pitch? So I'm a travel entrepreneur. I do adventure tours, some accommodation ventures, and I live in Copenhagen, in Thailand. And now I'm in the middle of the Atlantic on this Nomad cruise with my new old friend, <laughs> Milan. No worries. Yeah, so you've done very interesting things. You recently sold your business, True Travel, and um, you're about to start, or you have started your new venture, DNA Travel. Mm -hmm. But take me back to the beginning. How does Joe start? Where are you from? How does it all begin? Uh, so I'm from a place called Birmingham in England, which not many people would have heard of until the Piggy Blinders films came out on the, uh, the Piggy Blinders oh, series. Oh, that's Birmingham. Netflix, yeah. Okay, so. so. In Birmingham, way back. Way back in the day. Way back in Birmingham. So that sort of put Birmingham on the map, ironically. But anyway, I was born there. Black Sabbath's from Birmingham. What's from Birmingham? Oh, Black Sabbath. Yeah, mate. Ozzy Osbourne. There you go. He's like the most famous yeah. brummy out there. Yeah, he's a brummy, mate. He is a brummy. But... <laughs> As you can tell by his accent, you can't understand. It's not the most flattering of accents yeah, in the world. Okay. So I'm quite lucky that my parents moved me to London when I was about nine years old. Okay. Hence okay. no Brummie accent. So yeah, born in Birmingham, grew up around North London, went to university in Brighton. Um, and then after that, I went traveling and discovered the beauty. How old were you when you started traveling? So the first time I went on a proper travel trip was when I was about 19. And that, well, no, actually, that's a lie. When I was about 21, mm -hmm. started university when I was about 19. And mm -hmm. did the first two years, what I did was a sandwich course. Like, uh, they call it a sandwich course. You do a four-year degree. Two years of that is the first two years of university. Then you do a third year, which is supposed to be industry experience. So you get a job placement. And then after that, you go back and finish. And your, you studied what? You studied business? Business, yeah, yeah. yeah business degree. That's why you're a businessman now. <laughs> it is indeed. But in all honesty, the reason why I studied business was just because I didn't know what the fuck I wanted to do when I was right. 19 years old, 18 right. years old. But did you have an entrepreneurial spirit as a child? Or I did have like an that? entrepreneurial spirit, yeah. I've always dabbled with like little businesses along the way. Like at university, I had a, a removals company. Oh, okay. With two of my pals. Yeah, right, Jason right. Jason and Jermaine. So we nice. did it three J's removals. Three J's. <laughs> Triple J removals, but And when we started doing was student moves. So we thought okay. like in the in the first 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 and second year of uni, we uh 
all had part-time jobs. I worked at bookmakers. Okay. William, William Hill. So right. I was working, taking bets on like football. Oh, book. I thought racing. you meant like buying No, like, no, no. Uh, not like actually making books. Yeah, but right, in England, right. the betting companies are bookmakers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like William Hill. Yeah. Labrooks, sort of these people, they're bookmakers. Yeah, so right. I got a part-time job at William Hill when I was at university. And uh, that was interesting. But come the fourth year of university, I didn't want to get a part-time job anymore. I wanted to work for myself. Yeah. Set my own time. So me and a couple of mates, we bought like some shitty old Toyota high-ass van. Mm-hmm. And we're like, right, we'll just do student moves. So right. like, like the last few weeks of the semesters, we... Um, we went around offering very cheap removal services to students who had to move out of their dorms into a flat or an apartment right, in Brighton. Right. They had no idea how they were going to do it. They left it to the last minute. So we were like, right, 25 quid, chuck your bags in our van, we'll move you to anywhere in Brighton. Yeah. And then their friends heard about it. And they were like, yo, we need to move our shit out today. So you need to come and do us. And then yeah. from that, we got a few other bookings. We started doing uh, loads of random shit. But anyway, the point is, there's a bit of an entrepreneurial adventure. Yeah. Never make money doing that. We sustained ourselves. We sustained ourselves. It was never like a big money making venture. We uh, we did all right. We made a bit paid of money. Paid for the beers. Paid for the festivals and stuff we wanted to go to. And then yeah. at the end of the fourth year, we sold the van for pretty much what we bought it for, cool. and then carried on doing our own thing. Cool, cool. So that was a bit of an entrepreneurial ven- venture there. Um, but in Thailand is where it really kind of kicked off for you. That's where you became the travelpreneur. The travelpreneur, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's where I became the travelpreneur. And that was, I moved to Thailand because I started a company called True Travels. Yeah. And that was actually after I left university. So when I was at uni, but I went you didn't, to- you didn't plan, you went to Thailand just like as a backpacker, as a tourist. As a- sort of. Well, I went to, I went to Australia first, right. backpacker. And that was after my third year placement. Okay. So actually, the story goes back to before then. That's, right, right. Uh, when, I, when I started university, I wanted to be a finance guy. Yeah. I was very into... Corporate Joe Fallon. Yeah. I did business, but I specialized in finance. Okay. For the last few years. So yeah. corporate finance, accounting. I was yeah. very into like stock market. Basically, the end goal was I wanted to become a stock market trader and I wanted to sit on a beach, earning money through my laptop and living whatever life I wanted to live. Yeah. It was very much finance related. So uh, I was going for finance jobs in the third year when I was trying to get the third year business placement right and then i went for like an accountancy job which i didn't get yeah which was devastating at the time i thought it was yeah. the worst thing that could have happened your Got dream job you didn't get it exactly exactly i didn't get it and then i happened to be reading richard branson's autobiography at the time yeah and i'd almost sort of thought okay well you know what if i'm not going to get a job in finance i'm just going to go straight to my third year yeah so let me go past the job board one more time and see if there's anything on there that yeah that Dick was my fancy. Yeah. So there was a job there at Virgin Atlantic, the Airways. Yeah. And I thought, well, I'm reading Rich Branson's book. Maybe it's maybe it's fate. Maybe I should go for this job it's at cool, Virgin yeah. Atlantic, which was like a junior analyst at Gatwick Airport in their office. And so I went for that job. Absolutely didn't care whether I got it or not. Yeah. And what always happens when you go into a job interview, not caring whether you get it or not. You get it. Yeah. Same with chicks. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes, yeah. <laughs> so I got the job with Virgin. I did that for a year, working at Gatwick Airport. It was right. a cool experience. Learned loads of shit about the airline industry. Yeah. yeah. A lot of stuff about statistics and like the trends and patterns and, yeah. and how to improve processes and stuff like that. Very interesting. But the most interesting thing that happened was when I finished with them, they offered me two tickets to wherever I wanted to go in the world. Uh-huh. 
And I had about six weeks before I started university again for the fourth year. So I said, okay, thank you. I'm going to go to Australia. Mm. Took a friend of mine to Australia, did a mini backpacking trip down the East Coast. Nice. Started in Sydney. We actually started in Sydney, but then flew up to Cairns and then did the four weeks down the coast from Cairns oh, back to Sydney. That's the best. I'm and it was right. such an incredible experience. Yeah. Like, they say you get the travel bug, and that was when I got the travel yeah, bug. Yeah, for I was sure. like, holy shit, I need for to sure. do this more. Um, <laughs> Every Brit that comes to Australia. <laughs> oh, yeah, I forgot you're Australian. with the normal There's a lot life. of us. <laughs> well, we met about a billion Brits in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> more than you'll meet in Britain, probably. 100%. So, yeah, I did that, decided this is what I want to do now. Forget the finance stuff. I'm just yep. going to travel and I'll work the rest of that later. So I was actually almost tempted to stay there and not go back to university and, yeah. and finish my degree. But then I thought, man, I've done three years. I better go back and finish it. You didn't want to pick the fruit either. I did not want to pick yeah. the fruit. You got to pick fruit to keep backpacking in Australia. It's a great yeah. So, that that actually would have come later. So that's when you're on your working holiday visa, right? Yeah. To extend your working holiday visa, yeah. you've got to, do the, go, got to go and do the jobs that no Australians <laughs> want to do, which is picking fruit on farms, which is a pretty shit job by yeah. uh, any standards. Yeah. But that comes later. So after this one, I went back to the UK, finished my degree, and then thought, right, I'm just going to work for six months, earn enough money, go traveling, and then see what happened. So that's what I did. Went back, finished my degree. Went traveling, well, yeah. six-month contract first, went traveling. First of all, I went to Thailand, Yeah, did the whole sort of Southeast Asia. They called it the Banana Pancake Trail back then, which was all the young backpackers. They used to do Thailand, Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos. Yeah. And then at some point, they would go off to Australia and do their working holiday visit. Yeah, classic, classic. Which is what I did. Yeah. So originally, I gave myself like two, three weeks in Asia. Yeah. Thought, right, then I'll go to Oz, but I ended up spending three months in Asia because I loved it so much. Mm-hmm. Then went to Oz to do the working holiday visa, also loved that. Did the East Coast again. Met some good friends. Bought a car. Right. Came with a free surfboard. None of us know how to surf, but we tried. Uh, and then we drove down the coast and then got jobs in Sydney. Now, when I was in Sydney, a good friend of mine worked for a travel company that used to do like introductory tours to Sydney for backpackers who were on working holiday visas. So they landed in Sydney. They wanted to meet a group of friends. They wanted someone to hold their hands for the first week. And then they went off and did their thing around Australia, doing their working holiday whatnot. So I got a job with this tour company and ended up becoming like a sort of tour guide in Australia, showing backpackers around. And yeah. I just loved it. I was yeah. like, wow, this is the lifestyle. You were hosting the tours. Hosting the tours, yeah. showing people a good time, taking yeah. them to the Blue Mountains, taking them around Sydney. That itself is a dream job, really. It was an amazing job. Who would want to do it was that? An amazing job. Yeah. And so I must have been, what, 20? Two at the time, oh, probably 23. Great. Like I'd just yeah. finished uni. I'd done the traveling. Yeah. End up staying in Oz for nearly a year. And at that point, I wanted to stay in Oz, but I was not picking the fruit. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's, that's where the, 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 the fruit picking stuff uh, came uh, from. So that, a lot of my friends. Threw you out of Australia at the end. Sort of, yeah. That's so I was like, I ain't picking fruit for anybody. A lot of my friends have done it. I was like, yeah. no, 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 no. I like Australia, but not that much. Yeah, no. fair enough. Sorry, Milan. Australia's <laughs> not that good. Hey, I never had to pick fruit, you know. Exactly. You didn't put <laughs> that passport. It was so funny whenever I was in like hostels and hanging out with backpackers. They were like, oh, what's your visa? When do you need to pick the fruit? I'm like, I'm Australian, bro. Just, just vibing, bro. I need to do that. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, right. And then um, that brought you to Thailand. Yeah, so what, what I originally wanted to do in Australia, me and my, the guy who actually ended up starting True Travels with me, me and him started a six aside. He was also working for the tour company in Australia. Right. And we ended up trying to start like a little six aside football mini league thing. Okay. Where we were doing six aside football tournaments for backpackers on Sundays around Sydney. Okay. So we'd go to different hostels, 
sign-up teams of like six lads who wanted to play football, bring them all to like, it was Maroubra Bowls Club. Right. Converted one of their lawns into a football pitch. So we used to bring them there. We used to do tournaments on a Sunday, charge them all like 10 bucks a head to enter, do a barbecue. And we had these dreams of scaling this business across Australia and doing like mini leagues. And you have loads of these mini leagues in England. I don't uh-huh, think you cool. had so many of them in Australia at the time. Probably do now. Anyway, that didn't work. We thought we were going to get business visas and stay in Australia forever. And then we discovered to get a business visa, you had to invest $250,000 in the country. Right. And I had about $250 to my name. So <laughs> You were investing that in the bar. So. <laughs> yeah, well, I technically was investing in the country, but it wasn't enough to get a business visa. <laughs> yeah, right. So then the company I was working for, they asked me to go to Thailand and, and get involved in their tour company over there. Uh-huh. So that company brought you to Thailand? That company brought me to Thailand. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I thought, well, if someone's going to pay me to go back to Thailand, I'm going to do it because Thailand's amazing. Yeah. And I fell in love with it the first yeah, time I, I went. Went back there, worked for them for eight months, probably, in Thailand, running tours there. And again, it was the dream job, it was the dream lifestyle, but there was no career progression. That's yeah. the problem. I had yeah. all these customers coming on tour, they ended up becoming my friends, and then... So you had a lot of friends, you had a great time. I mean, it sounds amazing, but I get it. You, at some point, you were like, how do I progress? Was that the... You did the next step, you felt like you were stationary. Exactly. By this time, I'd been traveling and working for uh, almost two years right i was probably 24 okay. by then and uh i thought right i'm gonna need to become an adult i need some career progression so i actually put a bit of a business plan forward to this company and said listen i've got these routes i can plan these routes out for you i can help you expand the company and they weren't really interested they're like now nah, we've got a good thing going it's fine so i moved back to london got an adult job which happens to be recruitment. An adult job. That's an scary. adult job, I know. I know, I know. It's the last <laughs> adult job I ever had. I don't intend to get another one. Uh, which was, yeah. That was in recruitment. Recruitment. Right. Recruitment right. investment bank. Right. So but there is a lot of money in that. There is if you stick at it and you're good at it. And like I was, I was okay at it, but it didn't yeah. stick at it long enough. Yeah. After about a year and a half doing this, it was destroying my soul. And I thought there's got to be something more to life than, mm-hmm. than sitting in an office, watching the hands of the clock go past and, and wishing that time would go faster. Yeah, you didn't worry about that when you were bringing tour guides out and all that. Exactly. People used to ask me, they used to say, is there a, uh, is there a career, career progression where you are? And I'm like, no, but dude, if I had a million pound in the bank, what do you think I'd be doing? Yeah. I'd be on boats, chilling with my friends, going to waterfalls. And they were like, oh, that's what you're doing now. I'm like, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah, yeah. You're living the lifestyle. So, so I was living the lifestyle, but there was, it wasn't sustainable forever. Mm. You know, you can only do that for so long. So I moved back to England, got the adult job, didn't like that. And then one day on a dark and stormy night in London, <laughs> me and my friend and, and now business partner, Mark, we were sat in a pub with another guy, Marcus, who used to be a tour guide with us in Australia. And uh, we were like, man, our lives used to be so good. How did they become so shit? Mm. And actually, I forgot to add, like, I, I met an English girl while I was in Thailand. And right. fell madly in love. And we moved back to the UK together. Oh, you brought her back? Yeah. We moved to back the rain, to the <laughs> snow. <laughs> well, she was from the UK anyway, right? So okay. she, she was looking to, to get a certain job there, which she got. And she was doing really well in her career. Mm. And then me and my mates were in the pub having a chat. Like, our lives were so good good and now they're so boring what can we do to make our lives brilliant again mm. right, well what are we good at we're good at running tours mm. where do we like to live well we'd like to live in thailand mm. fuck it let's start a tour company in thailand sick, and it was pretty much how the conversation went that's great and uh, so that's we awesome. did 
And then, and it was still a pipe dream, you know, like there's a series of chance events occurred throughout the next six months that convinced us that that was what we were supposed to do. Right. And so we did it. We quit our jobs, flew to Thailand in December, 2012. We, st- we, we mm. registered the company in July, 2012, worked on the website. That was True Travel. That was True Travel. Right. Yeah. How'd you come up with the name? That was Mark. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, we were going through lots of different names and one day he called me, he's like, I've got it. We're going to be true travels. Mm. It's going to be like true Thailand, true Bali, true wherever uh-huh, we go. Uh-huh. And it's scalable. And I was like, you know what? Let's just go for it. And, and what I've actually learned now is you, everyone looks for the perfect business name. Sometimes you just got to go with something and you grow into it. Yeah. Like a kid. When like your sister has a kid and they call it something and you think that's a stupid name. Yeah. Well, you're going to call my nephew that. And then like, you know, I'm not saying that if my sister's listening. I'm not saying yeah, that. Yeah. That's what I love my nephew's name. It's brilliant since the day was born. But. If she had called him a stupid name, right. then he'd grown into it. You know, like yeah. kids do. Kids do. You think, oh, that's a straight name for a kid. And mm-hmm. when they're like 15, that's just that. Yeah. It's the same with the business. Yeah. Call the business what it is and you grow into it. Yes. The brand just yes. emerges and then the name becomes natural and you think it's cool. Yeah. So that was like what it was with True Travels. Um, and yeah, we moved to Thailand in December 2012. We ran our first group tour in January 2013 and then just grew the company. That was the very first slowly. tour. The first tour was great. Yeah. It was an interesting one because the How first- How many people did you have on the first tour? There were seven of us in total. Okay. Only three paying customers. So we got one paying customer in November 2012. Mm-hmm. And I got, we didn't expect to get any bookings. That's where yeah, your first customers. You had a website. We had a website. We okay. built on Wix. Yeah, nice. And nice. then we started running some very basic Google ads. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, the phone at the, at the time, the phone was just some phone number that diverted to my mobile. Right. And I was in bed one morning and the phone rang and I picked it up. I didn't expect it to be a true travel potential customer because we didn't expect yeah. to have any customers. Yeah. <laughs> so I picked up the phone, like, hello? Like, is this true travel? I was like, yes, yes, it is. How can I help? I'm looking at the uh, 15th of January departure, the 15th of January tour, and I think I'd like to book it. Right. How many people are going to be booked on this tour? Uh huh. I was like, oh, good question. I think we've got about seven booked on it now. Yeah. We're expecting maybe 10, 12 people. How much was the ticket? The ticket was super cheap. They were like £375 right. for a one-week tour in Thailand. Yeah. Right? And again, we had no idea about the industry. We didn't mm-hmm. even factor agency commissioning, mm-hmm. which was a huge thing. So that was not enough to make money. We what is know. agency commission? So when you've got a tour company or, or any sort of company in travel, even hotels, stuff like that, when you sell through an agency, mm-hmm. so it might be STA Travel, God rest their souls, they went, uh, they went down during COVID. Mm-hmm. They were a huge agency up until COVID. Um, if you've got someone like them or Flight Center or even Booking.com or whatever mm-hmm. selling your trips, you've got to give them a commission. Aha, uh-huh, okay. And we didn't realize that the commission in the travel industry at that time was like 20%. No one would get out of bed for less than 20%. Right. You didn't even know that. Not really. We never thought about it. <laughs> so we were like, ah, oh, 375 quid is enough to make money on this tour. And sure. actually, when you take 20% out and then everything else is not. But anyway, we put the price up sooner or later. Yeah. The aim of the game was just to get as many people on tour as possible and show them the most amazing time possible. Yeah. And so that's what we did. So the 15th of December tour, we got this first customer. Ellie was her name. She said, yeah, I'd like Shout to- out to Ellie. What's up? Shout out to Ellie. In fact, Mark actually found the check. Really? She wrote to pay for a tour, a check, and that's right. so old school. She was like, I'd like to book the tour. a check. Wow. Wrote a check. I've never written a check in my life, bro. <laughs> I'm showing my age. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, she, she said to me on the phone, she said, okay, I'd like to book it. Mm. I'm like, okay, cool. Just go onto our website, follow the procedure. You can just book it on there. She said, no, I'd like to book it on the phone with you. Mm. We hadn't thought about that. 
Right. I was like, oh, how am I going to do this? So I just opened my laptop and got the website up. So I went to the book <laughs> page and asked her the questions, filled yeah. in the forms. She was like, how would you like me to pay? I was like, well, you know, you can do a bank transfer. You can send us a check, however you like. Yeah. She sent us a check. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Mark actually found that check not long ago. So we're going to get it framed and put it up on the wall at the two travels. That, that's so cool, bro. I love it. So she was our first customer and then it became real. Yeah. Hey? Yeah. You have no customers booked. You can just cancel the tour and it's fine. Sure. But once there was one customer booked on mm-hmm. it, we were like, oh shit, that was on. We've got to yeah. get some customers on this tour because yeah. you can't just run a tour with her and us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be weird. <laughs> so at the time I was And seeing, how much time did you have till the tour? When you booked it, how many, how many so it days? So November. So we had like December, like the whole of December and like probably three. a few days in, in November and a few days in, in January. Okay, so maybe so five weeks. Five weeks. Okay. Not a lot of time. And, um, I happened to be seeing a girl that was a flight attendant. I was like, yeah. yo, you can get cheap flights. Book yourself flight to Thailand on the 15th of Jan. You've got to pretend to be a customer in our tour. <laughs> and then we had a Should guy. I'll pretend to be a customer for you, mate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, next time, mate. Uh, so then another guy called Isa, he was our first and only investor mm. in True Travels. And I was like, dude, you just invest in True Travels. Get your ass out. You need to pretend to be a customer as well. Mm. And so there was them two. Uh, Lauren, Lisa, me and Mark and Ellie. And then miraculously about one week before the tour started, when we were sitting in Bangkok, like trying to plan everything, we got two more bookings through. Wow. One of them was like a friend of a friend of Mark and the other one was just a random dude who booked online. So we had three paying customers, two pretend customers Mm -hmm. and me and Mark. There's your seven. That's enough for a good time. That's enough for a good time. (laughs) So we ran the tour and uh, it was amazing. It was yeah. amazing. Like we told everyone, like we told Elliot the story about three days in, we were like, right, Elliot. <laughs> so Lauren and Lisa are unreal customers. These guys are, you are, but you know, we're all having a good time and, and it was fun. Everyone had an amazing time. <laughs> yeah, career. I'm sure that, that was great. That's cool. You got to be part of the first tour. Like that's awesome. Yeah. So, so we ran that trip and then we had like one trip a month for the rest of that year. And we ran with like four people, five people, six people. I think we had one tour in July or June that year where there was like 12 people. And we were wow. like, holy and shit, it's a massive group. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we very, very, very slowly grew through travels. And um, as I said, the aim of the game was not really making money initially. It was just showing people the most amazing time possible. Right. So you were just living off savings. I was living off a bit of savings. After about sort of six, seven months when we started getting a bit of revenue in, we were paying ourselves like pittance from the company just right. to survive. I mean, in Thailand, you can live fairly cheaply. You can right? live cheap. You yeah, can live cheap. Like London. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And one of the realizations actually was that we're not going to both be able to live in Thailand, like myself and my business partner. So mm-hmm. he actually moved back to the UK fairly early on. Right. Why? Why did he need to be in London? Well, yeah. just because we needed to deal with agents. We had like, like even just things if like the website, uh, the hosting went down or something, mm-hmm. we needed to contact the company and it was difficult to do it from Thailand. Huh. And just, there was a, a, a load of reasons why yeah. we needed someone on the ground in the UK. And it, it, it suited him. He had sort of more commitments and, and more stuff in the UK that he needed and, and wanted to be in the UK for. Yeah. So he went back to the UK to do that. And his role was basically to get the customers and go and speak to the agencies, knock on the doors of STA Travels and people like that mm-hmm. and try and convince them to sell that tour. Right. My job was to show the customers amazing time, mm-hmm. put more products together, build the team over there, build the operations and, and make sure that all the customers that came over had a good time. And then later making sure that the staff had a good time. So mm. they can then keep the customers happy. Mm. Mm. Yeah, so we kind of started, you were focused on making the customers happy. 
slowly built from literally three customers on the first tour, slowly built it to when you were hiring more people and your philosophy changed from your personal role was more making the staff happy and that the idea was then, well, they would make the customers happy if they're having the adventure life. Exactly. I mean, it was a sort of lifestyle business for us at that point. Yeah. And uh, we wanted to have a good time. And we realized that if our staff weren't having the most amazing time, then how could they possibly give our customers the life-changing group experiences mm-hmm. that we wanted to give them? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, my job shifted from delighting the customer to making sure the staff are having a great time. And yeah. we did have a great time. Oh, I believe that. I wish I was there. <laughs> yeah, I wish you were there too. But I wish you were there. Where were you? <laughs> Where were you, mate? I was in Australia being a rock star, you know. <laughs> Had my own adventures. Um, yeah, and so True Travels, that was a huge part of your life then. You're slowly building it, building it. And it, you weren't making any money or very little money. When did it start to become kind of a real business, let's say, where you really start to turn over cash and you really feel uh, like a successful entrepreneur. 2015-16, we started to like really get traction. We That's started, after, what, four or five years? Uh, well, the first time was 2013, so it was like two, maybe three years. Okay. By then, we'd, we'd probably started our tour in Cambodia, so we decided we want to spread out throughout Southeast Asia and do more tournaments. Yeah. So we added a couple more routes within Thailand. So the first one was from Bangkok to Copenhagen. Then we did a West Coast one, so we went from Copenhagen over to the West Coast to PP and Krabi and all the places over there. Then we did a Northern Thailand tour, which ironically, these were the itineraries that I pitched to my old tour company that said they didn't want to do it. Mm. So I was like, well, I'll just use this business down for travels and yeah. they didn't want it. So yeah. we grew those routes, then went over to Cambodia and did a tour there. Then we moved to the Vietnam and the Philippines. Yeah, all over Asia. Exactly. Taking over slowly. Slowly, slowly, slowly taking over. And yes. a lot of these countries, they took a long time to pick up traction and get mm-hmm. enough customers on the tour to make it worthwhile. But still, yes. we were like, okay, doesn't matter. We'll run tours with three or four people. We'll lose money as long as we give these people an amazing time. Yeah. And then they go back and they tell their friends they and then they come. The word. Yeah. Spread the word. So that was the aim of the game. And we had a very close-knit team of, of people. There was probably seven of us for a while. But originally, all the functions were in Thailand. We had the mm-hmm. sales, the marketing, obviously all the operations. Everything was done from Thailand, even the finance. That first is it easy to set up things, like setting up a business in Thailand? I mean, you're an English speaker. Like, is, is there infrastructure there? Because you know Thai. You learned Thai as well. Yeah, but I didn't speak Thai then. No. No. So no. It, it's difficult, yeah. I mean, we... It's not difficult to actually set up a Thai company. You okay. can do that if you pay a lawyer, I don't know, a thousand pound or something, right. they'll set up a Thai company for you and you'll have the entity. Right. Then you can deal with suppliers and stuff legally. Mm-hmm. You can hire Thai people legally. Mm-hmm. You can get work permits for your Western staff mm-hmm. and they can stay in the country and work legally. Yeah. So we needed that. So we, we And even that took a, a long time to get it all up and running. Like we were winging it when we started. We sort of like filled in the gaps as we, <laughs> as we were going along. <laughs> That's how you do it. You just wing it, mate. Yeah. You just get going. I mean, you can't wait until everything's perfect, right? No. If you wait until everything's perfect, you never start. No, because it never is. Exactly. It never is. So True Travels is slowly cruising along. And I mean, a huge other part of your business is your portfolio is uh, you have a hostel and a resort. How did they come into the picture? Sure. So the hostel was first. That was a place called Echo Beach in Thailand, mm. in Copenhagen, in Thailand. And it got to the stage where we had a lot of customers coming through Copenhagen. And we thought, well, it makes sense for us to have shares at least in an accommodation provider because we have enough customers coming through to basically break even on a hostel now. Mm. So then if we can get outside customers, we can make it a profitable hostel. Mm. 
And we chatted to a few people and then we ended up talking to the owner of Echo Beach. It was like friends. I think he was friends with one of the guys that worked for us at the time and they introduced us. He was looking for investment. Obviously, he wanted us to bring our groups through the hospital mm, because it was. And in Copenhagen, as anyone who's been there or been near there knows, is known for the full moon party. Right. Which is like a monthly beach party. Basically, loads and loads and loads and loads of drunk backpackers. Big shit show on the beach. Like, it's a good time. but That's it's amazing. Wild. It's yeah. wild. And we had already, we had always thought we're never going to take tours to full moon. Because if something's going to go wrong, is going to go wrong at full moon. Yeah. Someone's going to lose their wallet. Someone's going to lose the souls, the dignity themselves. <laughs> <laughs> it just, it, it was, we thought it was going to be a disaster if we ever did, did full moon tours. So we steered clear of that for, for that reason. After about a year of this, this mentality, we were like, well, all the groups are staying in Thailand with us for the full moon anyway. They're staying in Copenhagen with us for the full moon anyway. And they're coming to the full moon with us and we're showing them a good time, which is not getting paid for so it. they would kick on after the yeah uh, they'd hang around like right. back then a lot of the customers were like long-term backpackers yeah so they'd be going traveling around some of them would come back to Copenhagen for the next full moon they'd go off and do a bit and they'd come back and then yeah. link up with us i mean it was such a good time and such a good vibe and such a good trip that we had some people came and did the same tour five times <laughs> just because they they loved the tour <laughs> guides they loved the island yeah. they know they'd done the tour but they were like fuck it cheap yeah i'm just gonna do it right yeah so they'd come back through. Some of them would rent a house in Copenhagen for a month. Wow. Just come and live with us in Copenhagen. Yeah. Come to the full moon party. So we're like, okay, we know how to do the full moon party good now. Yeah. Right? And we can, we can really add value here. Like rather than people going themselves and messing up and losing all their shit, we can actually, we know how to do it. We've been doing it. So we actually did put a full moon package together, which was essentially a five-day add-on to the eight-day trip that we already had that ended in Copenhagen. And that was actually what blew up. Mm. Like 2015, 16, that was like... Ah, the full moon party got you. Well, the full moon party tours. So we did yeah. the tour, then the full moon was like the last few days. And then we did a few boat trips and like a couple of cool things in Copenhagen. And we ended up going from running one full moon tour a month. And our capacity was always 18. It was the 18 people. More than that, it's not like a personal group. No one's yeah. going to get to know each other. The real bonds aren't going to be formed because it's too big. There's going to yeah. be subgroups. Yeah. But then we, I think we went up to about 23, 24 on the full moon groups. Because there was such demand. Right. And then they were filling up every month. So, shit, we better start another one. So we had two groups of 25 people running. Nice. Then we had three groups of 25 people, and they were all staggered by a day. So they wouldn't really see each other until they got to Copenhagen. Uh-huh. And then there would be 75 true travelers uh-huh. in Echo Beach hostels. <laughs> so good. With all the other customers in Echo right, Beach. Right, right. So that was, uh, that was one of the things that really accelerated our growth, I think, was just having the balls to do the full moon thing. Nobody else was doing that. Everyone mm-hmm. does it now. Nobody else was doing that at the time. I'm really happy for them. Apart from like, there's a couple of small Canadian companies that were doing it. They're very niche. Well, they're just shit. worried, like you said, about people losing their shit. And yeah. It's so wild. I guess so. Yeah. I guess so. I mean, it, it, if you speak to people who have been to Full Moon, probably half of them have had a terrible experience. Okay. Because they've lost all their shit. Right. And they've, they've ended up passed out on the beach and waking up sunburned with no wallet, or they've ended up in... Flipping. But is that because they're so drunk or yeah. because someone robs them? Or... No, no, it's because they get so drunk. Right, well, that's so of their own doing. Not of their own yeah. doing, If yeah, you're reasonable, they're... it's fine. Then. For sure. But how many 20-year-olds are going to Thailand for the first time of reasonable? <laughs> <laughs> Not many. Yeah. Not many. Okay. Reasonable. I mean, the reasonable ones probably have great time. 
<laughs> but it's the stories you hear from the others. That's where there's mm-hmm. such a thing around it. Like, oh, like many people are scared to go. Right. A lot of people want to go because they've heard it's just a big shit show on the beach. 20,000 drunk people right. are attracted to that. Right. But anyway, we did that. And then we got Echo Beach and we started bringing customers through Echo Beach. Mm-hmm. We actually sort of started managing that. Me and my, so uh, Ryan, Ryan, who was one of my first, in fact, my first travel buddy. He's the one, when I went to Thailand the first time, we ended up meeting and sharing a room and traveling together for like three months. After True Travels got to the stage where I needed another tour guide and like more people involved, Ryan was one of the first guys I called. Uh, there was another couple who got involved early, Luke and Holly. Luke used to run the tours. Holly used to do the customer services and stuff and deal with the sales. Then we brought Ryan in, who is now the operations director for True Travels. So he started running the trips with me. And um, so you had career progression. It was building because it was your own business, right? Exactly. exactly. But you also let career progression come through to your staff. For well. sure. And in fact, that was one of the other principles. So, so the main principles was delight the staff, delight the customers, give them all an amazing time. The other thing was build the career progression into the business mm. because that's why I left. That's why I left the company I was with. Mm. My career progression. Yeah. I'm interested in hearing my ideas. So... Me and Mark were like, well, if we want to keep the best people, we better make sure there's some career progression. Because yes. there was yeah. never any career progression for us when we worked for them. Yeah, right. But we sort of learned from their mistakes and the things that we didn't like about their company, we just thought we'd improve on. And so, yeah, we got, we got a, lot of, a lot of really cool people in at the start. Like Ryan didn't even know how to switch on a computer. He was an electrician by trade. Wow. And he was doing a dive master's course in Kotao. And now he's building spreadsheets with the best of them. Cool. No, he That's didn't know cool. anything about that sort of thing. But you know what? He had a good attitude. He was a good guy. He was yeah. good people. He had a growth mindset. He had a growth mindset. <laughs> and That's something you told me recently, growth mindset versus fixed mindset, which basically is uh, – why don't you explain it? That's one of your sure, points. Sure, sure, sure. So the difference between someone with a growth mindset and a fixed mindset, now nobody is absolute. Mm. Everyone is on a scale between growth, growth and fixed mindset. With different things, I might be more towards the growth mindset. Some things are more towards the fixed mindset with other things. Mm-hmm. But basically, those who sit more on the growth mindset side believe that you can become good at anything through hard work, effort, perseverance, and trying and failing and trying and failing and adapting your approach. People with a fixed mindset tend to believe that success is the result of God-given talent or natural abilities. And therefore... There's no point trying if you're not good at something. Mm. You know, everyone met someone, oh, I'm just not a runner, I can't do that. Yeah. And you know what? If you start running every day, you would be a yeah, runner. You ran. tell yourself that, you ain't going to be. Yes. Yeah, and also, if you, if you attribute success to being a winner or to being naturally talented or something like that, then what happens when you fail? You must be a loser. You must be a nobody. You must, mm. And you feel bad about yourself. You know, so it's, it's not about that. It's about the growth mindset is about being able to keep going and keep learning through yeah. mistakes. And that's the difference, essentially. It's, it's so good. Such a strong paradigm. Mm-hmm. I'm, uh, I'm not letting it go. Well, there's an amazing book, which I'll, which I'll recommend to all your listeners here. Go on, um, it's called Black Box Thinking by a guy called Matthew Syed. He's actually read, wrote a couple of really good written, right? written a, re- a couple of really good business books. But Black Box Thinking, he talks about growth mindset, fixed mindset, and the difference. And he actually... Uh, uses a couple of industries. The reason it's called black box thinking is because it talks about the aviation industry. Mm-hmm. The aviation industry have a growth mindset. Any near miss or any crash or any near crash or anything that goes wrong, 
They analyze the data in the black box and they share this across the industry. It's not they just keep this to their, their airline. They share that across the industry and the whole industry improves, which is why airlines are, well, the airline industry is one of the safest. Um, he also argues that the health industry have more of a fixed mindset. So when things go wrong in medicine, because there's such a reputation of people getting sued, it's almost like people are using their energy to cover up the fact of what happened yeah. or using their energy to justify it rather than looking into it and investigating how can we stop this from happening in the future. Mm. So, yeah, really good book. You should read it. But it's true of everything you can apply. If you might have a growth mindset towards learning a language or a fixed mindset yeah. there. How many people say, I'm no good at languages? Sebastian said that earlier. The we, we're we're, talking there's to. a guy on this boat that speaks 12 languages. He started talking to me in Serbian, which blew my mind. <laughs> he told me he was half French and half Argentinian. <laughs> I might wrangle him onto the podcast if I can. Yeah, and then he started chatting Romanian to the girl sitting next to us who Romanian. Yeah, yeah, that was, <laughs> that was wild. That's one of the best party tricks you could do. <laughs> uh-huh. and, and what did he say when everyone was asking him about, mm. what's your secret to learning so many languages? He said, well, I, I believed I could. I never yeah. had this attitude where yeah. learning a language was hard. Yeah. His mindset was full road. Exactly, because he was fortunate to have been been half Argentinian, half French. So he yeah. grew up speaking French, Argentinian, and English. Mm. So to him, a new language wasn't something scary. He mm. never was one of those people who went around going, oh, I'm shit at languages, I'll never learn one. No. I was. At yeah. school, yeah, they tried enough. to teach me French and German. I can barely speak a word of French and German. Mm. And so in my head, I was like, I must be shit at languages. Mm. So different. But you different. do know Thai now pretty I well. I speak Thai. I mean, I'm not fluent, fluent, not okay. good as I should be after sure. 10 years in the country, sure. but I, I speak better than Thai than 99.9% of foreigners in Thailand. Yeah, for ranks. For ranks, yeah. <laughs> enough, enough to impress Thai people and have a basic conversation, basically. And yeah. Get by. If I was in an area of Thailand where no one spoke English, I could get by. Okay. Cool. I couldn't have a deep conversation about politics or anything mm-hmm. like that. Very cool, very cool. So you get in the hostel trade, you buy a hostel, and you've also got a resort. Yeah, that came a few years later. Okay. So the hostel was great. We we worked with the with the other partners in the hostel. Myself and Ryan were very heavily involved in managing the hostel, yeah. running the hostel. Like we'd be. You also had a venture with the hostels with Mad Monkey. Is that right? Yeah, that came later as well. Okay. Um, we were just good pals with the guys who own Mad Monkey. Yeah, and uh, we actually the first Cambodia tour we did, we called it the Monkey Ladder. Yeah, Mad, Mad Monkey's a big franchise chain of hostels. Yeah, they are big now. They started yeah. in Cambodia and they built uh, hostels across Cambodia and yeah. they branched out into the rest of Asia and now they're, they're pretty big. Yeah. And four owners, uh, legends. Like, I've been friends with them for a while. The only one I haven't met yet is Steve, who's based in France, but he was the first one I spoke to on a phone call. Right. Because we wanted to go to Cambodia and um, we wanted to use the Mad Monkey hostels. So we spoke to Steve, he introduced me to Alex. Then eventually I met Tom and Ollie, who are the other partners, and um, we just became very good friends. Whenever the True Travelers crew and the Mad Monkey crew were in a place, we'd always just go out and have a good time. And, yeah, we just became very, very good friends. And when I wanted to do a new hostel in Copenhagen, I spoke to them because we'd turn this hostel, Echo Beach, we'd turn from like, I say we, it was a collective effort of everyone involved. Mm-hmm. But when we got heavily involved, we managed to help them grow from like a, I don't know, 40 or 50 bed hostel we took over two buildings over the road. And by the time we were at our peak, we had like 180 beds. Mm-hmm. And so there was like, yeah, it was a wild time. There was like mm-hmm. 180 backpackers partying oh, in this yeah. hostel around full moon, half moon oh, parties. And sounds amazing. It was amazing. <laughs> and so we thought, well, if we've done this with, with a relatively own, unknown hostel in Copenhagen, where it's a very competitive environment for hostels, yeah. 
then with the backing of Mad Monkey, who have done this, this is their mm. business, this is what they do, mm. we can't fail. Yeah, to and take over. Failed. And, and it just <laughs> blew up. Why? That, yeah, when you told me that, why did it fail? Why I did mean, it fail with Mad a, Monkey? A multitude of reasons. Like at that time, it was probably, I don't know, 2018 maybe. <laughs> so we weren't that far away from COVID when we, when we first started. And actually before that, Copenhagen was in a bit of a decline. Because of the full moon pie, I feel like the full moon made the island, but it also sort of started destroying it slowly because so many people used to go to Copenhagen for full moon that the supply had to be that big. Right. That big. That big. <laughs> but the, um, the demand most of the time was only that big, right? So the right. demand on... Yeah, full moon, it was that ultra capacity and yeah. the rest of the time you couldn't... You didn't have enough demand. Precisely. So anyone could go and start a hostel in Copenhagen and make money at full moon. Mm. You'd make money four days of the month mm -hmm. and the rest of the month you'd be empty because there was too many beds on the island Yeah, relative to the amount of tourists who came to the island for the like the young tourists, the backpackers, the type of people who stay in hostels. Mm. They only came for the full moon. And so it was sort of in a bit of a decline because of that, because there were just so many hostels. The prices would be people undercutting each other. It was a race to the bottom. Right. Outside of full moon. Full moon, the prices would be like double, triple what right. they were. Outside of full moon, the prices would go down, 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 down until people were charging like $1 a night for a hostel bed. Jeez. Exactly. You can't make money like that. So we were, in, we were in this environment. And, and also the landlady, the person who owned the building that we leased for the Mad Monkey Hostel was horrible. Mm -hmm. She was like an evil, evil person who for some reason wanted us to fail and just threw every spanner in the works. Right. Did everything she possibly could. Why? She was the landlord. Yeah, I know. Because she she believed that she just wanted to get more money out of us. So like the day we opened, she knew we did laundry. She knew we had like a few other mini businesses within. She opened the laundry service and like a motorbike service. She knew we had our own taxi drivers, but she demanded that we use her taxi wow. to get the full okay. moon. If we didn't use her taxi, she would block the road with her taxi so none of our customers could get the full moon. She was like wow. the most unreasonable person I've ever met in my entire life. <laughs> That's not. So she didn't make it easy. Um, and yeah, it was just a, just a multitude of things and it, it didn't work. And then COVID was sort of on the horizon. I was like being COVID was coming. spoken about. It was mm -hmm. like this strange virus coming out of Wuhan that might right. cause problems in the future and at that time our, our rent was due to be paid for the next year mm -hmm. and we you paid the whole rent up front in for one year I think we paid first like maybe two years up front she went and bought herself a brand new BMW <laughs> <laughs> that's crazy we also paid for a new building right. more dorms a new bar and then it's so a heavy investment heavy investment heavy investment and I feel bad about this to this day because I was the one that was like pushing it and I was sort of like well we're going to do this hostel in Copenhagen anyway if you guys want to be involved mm -hmm. they said yes we'll be involved mm -hmm. and it was a massive failure and we mm -hmm. all lost a lot of money as a result mm -hmm. and so I sort of feel bad about that because they're my mates everyone, mm -hmm. everyone who invested in this thing were my friend mm -hmm. and we all lost money so yeah we, we just decided when the rent was due for renewal or uh, when the, the next rent installment was due we were like nah we're not doing it we're, we're, we're Cut it off. cutting off like she had breached the contract in so many ways we were just not, it was not going to be a good thing. And then COVID happened, we were like, thank fuck, we cut it off. Yeah, wow. Because that would have just been good money after bad. Yeah. Um, so unfortunately, the, the, the Mad Monkey joint venture was a, was a short-lived thing. But fortunately, Mad Monkey are doing excellently now. They've actually 
grown massively. Yeah, I've stated a few mad monkeys in Australia. They're, they're, yeah, in Coogee. Yes, in fact, be. the one that they no, took over... No, it was over, in Cairns. Okay. They had three in Cairns or Lawrence. Shut which up. I was like, no, how many of these mad monkeys are So there? their first one in Australia was actually in Coogee, which is uh, one of the, uh, the eastern suburbs of in Sydney, right? Yeah, right. So their first one, it used to be a place called Surfside. Mm-hmm. That was where we stayed when we first went to Australia. Oh, we yeah. oh, back. back. Fate is calling. Oh, it all bro. goes around. It all goes around. So when Alex told me um, that they were getting a hostel in Australia and it was in Coogee, I was like, which one? And he was like, Surfside. I was like, no fucking way. That was the first place I ever stayed in Australia when I went over. That's crazy. So cool. So yeah, they're doing really, really well. True travels. We absorbed the losses. We carried on going. Yeah. But. We gave up on the Mad Monkey Cup and Yango. And how different is running? You had a resort as well, a resort versus a hostel. It's a totally different business model, different clientele. Or what's um, the story there? It's pretty similar. I mean, you just you're just going after a different a different target audience, mm. right? So we with the resort that we ended up getting in Copenhagen. That was about the time the Mad Monkey was sort of like it was going down the pan. It was struggling. We had an opportunity arise through a, through some Thai friends of ours. They said, look, my cousin has got this lease on this property and she's struggling. Mm. She was old school. She didn't know booking.com. She didn't know Agoda. She didn't know Hostel World. Her way of getting customers was to give the taxi drivers a commission to bring people from the pit. Wow. Yeah. That's cool. Back in the day, that worked. Yeah, Because right? sure. there was no Hostel World. Everyone had sure. a copy of the Lonely Planet. Right, they right. They'd go around with the Lonely Planet, they'd get to the pier, and then they'd find the best hotel that they could when right. they were there. Right. But that business model had ceased to be successful five years before yeah, that. sure. And she was still hammering that model because she didn't know anything else. Right. So we got involved. We bought into the last couple of years of her lease and just helped her basically make enough money to pay the rent and not go further into debt. Mm. Then at the end of that, we, we, she stepped out. We took over the full lease. Mm. Um, and then that's when it sort of became Tiki Beach, mm-hmm. which is what it is now. Yeah. Um, and we just decided, we're like, right, we're not going to make it a hostel. We're going to have two, we've got two dorm rooms. So there's two seven bed dorm rooms and then there's like 33 private rooms. Mm-hmm. So mainly privates. We still get a lot of backpackers go there around full moon, mm. but we also get young families. We get sort of digital nomads. We get like older people on holiday that just want to stay at a chilled out resort and not mm. do the four or five star, like four-year-olds, 50-year-olds sometimes. Yeah. Just we get, we get a way more varied group of people. And to me, it's just it's just nicer. Mm. You know, like hostels are like, it's, it's, it's a challenge. It's a challenge, especially in Copenhagen when there's so much, so much competition. Mm. And the hostels are treading on the toes of a lot of big hotels. Mm. A lot of heat from the authorities. Aha, uh-huh, right. And stuff like that. When you're, when you're running the hostel, even if you're completely legal, you've got all the licensing and stuff, which many of them don't. <laughs> even if you do, yeah. the big hotels, the ones with the power, they complain to the police about stuff. The police come around, take to turn the music down and like... Aha, uh-huh, that's how the police get involved through the... Uh-huh, okay, it's like a power game. Yeah, exactly. So it's tough running a hostel. But when we got the resort, we're like, right, we're not going to make it a huge pie place. Mm. We're not going to draw too much attention to ourselves. We're going to make it a nice, chilled place to hang out. Um, and it's cool. Really enjoy it. It's not as full on as running a hostel, but it's basically the same thing. Did you mm. ever play The Sims when you were younger? I never got into it. Okay. So I never played The Sims, but I played games like Theme Hospital and Theme Park and Sim City and that. Mm-hmm. And to me, running a hostel or a resort is a bit like that, right? 
<laughs> you organize shit, right? And you move yeah. things around. You feel, okay, we'll build a little gym in the garden. <laughs> or we'll put like a flowing pontoon out in the sea. <laughs> or we'll change the bar or the seeing in some way. And then you sit there and you see how the people react to it. Yeah, yeah. And whether yeah. they're having a good time or not. Oh, we're going to need another <laughs> member of stuff at the bar. We need to increase our prices on this or decrease them. It's just a bit like that. You just manipulate things and move things around a little bit and mm. then just see how the people react. Mm. And then change your approach based on the reaction you get. So it's the same model. I guess that's the same of any business. It's like SimCity in real life. Basically. Yeah, basically. <laughs> it's fun. And, but then when COVID happened, at that point, you had a travel company. Mm -hmm. uh, you had a tour agency, rather. You had a hostel and a resort. Mm -hmm. And what? Everything just exploded? <laughs> like, what happened? Every, there's no bookings anymore? What? No, everything went to shit. No, yeah. traveling, right? Yeah. So uh, I was actually in Colombia. Mm-hmm. When COVID really, when it really hit the fan. You were on a holiday? No, I was over in Colombia because we were just launching Latin America for True Travel. Aha, uh -huh, okay. So we were just launching tours in Mexico, Colombia, Costa Rica, and Peru. Mm -hmm. and the plan was for me to go over there and basically set it up. So there was a few of my other colleagues that were over there. Uh, there was uh, another guide from, from our now sister company that would join us and help us put things together. And we were supposed to do these dry runs of all these tours to get them ready to then start selling to the public. And I was on day 10 of the 12 day Columbia tour. Mm. And it was like, no way, everyone's got to go home. There's curfew, oh everything's God. closed. We can't go to the island we wanted to go to because the boat's been canceled. And everyone thought everyone was going to die. And that was when everyone yeah. was super shit scared. Panic was hardcore. Panic was hardcore. And so originally I was like, ah, it can't be that bad. It'll blow over in a few weeks. Yeah. Maybe we'll just go to Mexico and read it out. I think about it. So a few of us went over to Mexico because that was the next destination. Anyway, we were going to go and plan our Mexico tour, meet up with our suppliers and our tour guides and stuff in Mexico. So we went there. We spent about four or five days there. Then it was like, nah, this ain't going to end quickly. So I flew back to the UK to be with my business partner, Mark, mm -hmm. and in the UK office and basically ensure that two travels didn't die a painful death mm -hmm. during COVID. Gee, that must have been painful. It was painful. It was the first time we ever had to lay anyone off. Yeah, right. We were laying off our friends, so it was super painful. Yeah, you know? like it was tough. The whole thing about two travels, what made us better than the other, eight, the other tour operators out there was the true fan. Yeah. It was that people. Yeah. That relationship that we had between our people, mm -hmm. between the people and the customers. That was what made us better. And we'd only ever grown. We'd only ever laid people off if they'd done something fucking stupid and they needed to be laid off. Mm. We'd never laid people off who had done a good job mm. ever. Mm. And so at this point, we were like, holy shit, we're going to have to like let people go here. We don't know how to deal with this. Mm -hmm. like, fortunately, a year before COVID happened was when we actually sold a stake in our company to this mammoth tour operator called mm. G Adventure. Yeah. Who, um, yeah, you sold a big stake before COVID. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> when you look back on it, it seems like somebody's taking care of you. Yeah, I mean, it was lucky because, as, as you pointed out earlier, we never took any money off the table. We never took big salary. Mm. We didn't really pay much dividends mm -hmm. for, the, for the six, seven years, seven years probably before G Adventures contacted us and asked mm. us if we wanted to sell some of our company to them. Right. Had we not done that, who knows? Maybe true. And they just contacted you out of the blue. Yeah, Mark and I were at a travel conference, the World Youth Travel Conference in Montreal, Canada, and uh, one of the guys from G Adventures emailed Mark, I think, and said, "Can you guys come and meet us for a chat?" Met him for a chat, and um, 
yeah, he was like pitching to us the idea of them buying into our company. And we were like, first of all, how the fuck do you even know who we are? <laughs> <laughs> they're so huge. I mean, I think yeah. at the time they were like $500 million revenue company. Yeah. And then they, we were like, why do you, why, why? Why do you even want to say like, well, we've noticed you're taking some market share within the young people. They, they do tours for people of all ages, mm. every country, mm. everywhere, all over, all over the world. And, um, we focused on the backpacker market. And because of that, we did a better job in the backpacker market because right. we focused yeah, totally on that yeah. market. And we were a much cooler company than them, you know? They had mm -hmm. to be like everything to everyone. Yeah, they were corporates. You were like... Yeah, we were, just, we were just having fun. Yeah. And so we were communicating with our customers in a way that they could not. Mm -hmm. And so they contacted us and said, like, basically, they knew we were taking market share away from them and other companies like us, not just us. Mm. But they wanted to buy into one of those companies that was taking market share in order to bring that market share back into their organization, mm. their, 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 which is now like a group. Now what they want to do is buy several travel brands and have lots of brands under the umbrella. So initially we were like, absolutely not. No way. And then they were like, well, why don't... What, because they didn't offer enough money? Or no, no, no. We weren't even talking money in that product. way. Money wasn't right. even a topic of conversation. We were just like, no, why the hell would we partner with you? We're doing fine. Yeah. Um, and like, you're this cheesy old person's company, man. Why would we be involved with that? <laughs> but um, they convinced us, you know, they were, they were, they were very convincing. And, and uh, the guy that we spoke to in, in Canada said to Mark, why don't you go and meet Bruce, who's like the, the owner of them in London when he's in London. And so when, when Bruce was in London, he met Mark and they had a coffee. And he's pretty convincing when he wants to be. Yeah. Uh, and so Mark called me and said, I was in Thailand then. He called me and said, you need to have a Skype call with this guy. He said all the right things. Mm. Let's just explore the options. Mm -hmm. So I was like, all right, fine. I'll have a Skype call with the guy. And I did. And I was like, yeah, he said some quite good stuff. And, and also the, the key thing was it, the key thing was looking into it, their values, it seemed very closely aligned with that. It's like mm -hmm. whilst we were a company for backpackers and we we're showing people a good time, we always wanted to try and do our best to change the world in the best possible way through travel, mm -hmm. right? Travel's a great way to redistribute wealth if mm -hmm. you do it right. Mm -hmm. If you make sure that the money that your customers are spending stays within the community as much as possible. Mm -hmm. If you make sure you look after your staff and give them career progression opportunities, mm -hmm. if you make sure you hire the local staff and treat them well and give them education opportunities and opportunities to travel, which they would never normally have, and supporting local charities and schools and whatever it might be, there's so many good things that can be done with travel. And actually, G Adventures were, were, were sort of, I wouldn't say pioneering it because there was a lot of other companies doing the same thing, but they were very bloody good at it. One of the things they were, were doing was making a lot of difference to the world. And so I think my dad or someone, I told him about it, and he was like, yo, I just watched a TED Talk or something with Bruce did, and he's saying a lot of the same shit that you did. He did a TED Talk, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or something, I don't know. He's a speaker. He goes, he's a he's a. PR person, he right, goes around right. doing speaking and stuff at lots and lots of events around the world. He did a lot of speaking and stuff. And actually at the time we were like, well, stuff he talks about is really interesting to us because we want to do as much good as we can. And they're doing it on a much larger scale than we were doing it. So that was one of the reasons why we actually entered into the conversation seriously because they were like, okay, these guys aren't just terrible tourist company that yep. exploiting people and all the rest of it. And actually we want to be better at that. So maybe we could learn from them as to how we can have a more mm -hmm. positive impact on the world whilst having a good time and mm -hmm. showing all our people a good time in Asia mm -hmm. and Latin America and all the rest of it. So we ended into conversation. They flew us out to Toronto, which is where the HQ is, wine and dined us, took us to some like concerts, VIP boxes nice. and all that shit. Yeah. Introduced us to their team. And actually the team was super cool. Me and Mark got on very well with them. 
And then when it got to the stage of talking about money, we were like, okay, they're not going to, we thought they were going to pull our pants down and give us like the low ball offer. Mm -hmm. Actually, when we said what we wanted and they were like, ah, it's not too unreasonable. And actually the real thing that made us decide to go with it was that they promised us that we could continue to run the company how we wanted to run the company. I don't even know if I'm allowed to talk okay. about the details yeah, of the yeah, deal yeah. on, on, on sure. public podcast because sure. sure. there's like contracts and no stuff. No one listens to this anyway. No. <laughs> <laughs> they will one day, man. They will one day. <laughs> so, yeah, it was, it was a decent chunk. It yeah. allowed – it was enough money for us to feel like even if the company went down the pan, we wouldn't have worked for seven years for nothing. Mm. We could still go and do our own thing and be comfortable. Mm. Um, and if that meant giving up a larger share of the company than we wanted to, okay, yeah. fine. So we did that. And then the promise that we could continue doing our thing and not have them get involved, they would only be involved as much as we wanted them to be. They had a huge finance team, huge marketing team, huge IT and tech team. We never had any of that. So we were like, sweet, we can lean on them, mm. carry on doing what we're doing, and they're just going to open more doors. Mm. And then even if we get rid of a big chunk of the company and, and keep hold of a smaller chunk of the company – that smaller chunk will one day be worth more than the rest of it would have been anyway mm. with their help growing. So that was the idea. And actually, for the first year, I don't really think they helped that much. They <laughs> we, we basically lost a load of money that year because really? we had to hire, yeah, we had to hire proper accountants, financial uh -huh. controllers. We took their marketing team's advice on like some marketing stuff and ended up spending hundreds of thousands of pounds on ads that didn't work. Right. They would work for them. Right. They wouldn't work for us. It's different. So we realized, okay, fine, we'll, we'll, we'll carry on doing our thing. We'll just lean on them. And slowly we thought, okay, yeah, this is going to work. We're going to grow. But then COVID happened. Mm -hmm. And then we were like, holy shit, everyone's going to go out of business. <laughs> right. What's going to go on here? Right. But because we had them, we, we could lean on them and they could, they could uh -huh. make sure that we didn't go out of business. As long as we were sensible and we cut our burn rate or our spending rate down to the minimum possible, they said they would support us and make sure we didn't go down the pan. So that was good. That was, that was why it was probably a good thing that we didn't deal when we did it. Yeah. I think you've done pretty well, mate. Yeah, 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 exactly. Not going to complain. Not going to complain. So then after COVID, we positioned ourselves during COVID very well. We did, we did exactly what we needed to do during COVID. And then when we came out of it, we had not just Southeast Asia where we were doing really well. We also had Latin America, which we were in the process of starting. And during COVID, we started Europe. Because no Europeans were going anywhere but Europe. Right. So then we came out with three continents. So we had the potential to be a much larger company. And because we looked after our staff so well, and because our staff such legends and, and they were our mates, they were all waiting just to come back. As soon as we, we gave them, that, that was like my primary goal after COVID, was like bring the fan back together. Oh, that's cool. Bring the fan back together. So yeah. the, first, the first six months of COVID, when I was in the UK with Mark trying to figure out how the hell we were going to, make sure that two travels didn't go bust and we positioned ourselves to, to come out of it better. Um, Ryan was in Thailand with the crew. And obviously the resort had to close. So we were like, listen, we haven't got jobs for you. We can't necessarily pay our tour guides for forever when we're not running tour. We don't know how long this is going to last, but you can live at the resort. We're not going to see anyone homeless. We're not going to see mm. anyone without food. Mm. So they, a lot of the staff stayed there for up to six months. Right. Until they slowly started dispersing, like the ones that needed to go back to the UK or America or back to other parts of Thailand or other parts of Asia mm. didn't. Some ended up having to get other jobs doing stuff they didn't Can want to I do. Can I just ask? I mean, you have, like you said, it's the true, the true travel fam. How do you go about hiring and keeping such a cool vibe in the culture of your company? 
I mean, first of all, it's about hiring, right? So yeah. Like, as I said before, when it came to Ryan and people like that, I didn't hire for the skills or the experience they had. We hired for the, the people that they were. People that were super cool, super good with people mm-hmm. and had a growth mindset. You know, yeah. People that were willing to learn and yeah. knew that they could learn stuff. Yeah. Competent people that were really nice. Yeah. Basically. That's all. Basically. And then and that was it. And then we 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 made sure everyone was having a fucking good time. Mm-hmm. Made sure that we were all treated as well as we could. And yeah. And we, we did like, for example, the year that we sold the shares to G Ventures, me and Mark made a fair bit of money. Mm. That was the first time we actually made a dividend, like a decent dividend. Right. So we gave that all to our staff. That's great. Hundred percent of the profits that we made on the company that year, we gave it to our people. Wow. So, because we were like, we're getting enough for the G deal anyway. That's just, I don't know, about 150 grand's worth of dividends that we could have put in our pockets. We went, nah, we're just going to give it to the staff. So, based on how long they've been with us and how mm. much they've contributed, they got different amounts. I think it was about probably 40 people that got a decent-ish payout mm. from that. So, it was just things like that. Had we not done things like that, these people wouldn't have come back to us after COVID. I mean, some of them offered to work for free for as long as it took. Wow. Which is, you don't get that. No. You can't buy that shit. No. You can't. That's incredible. Mm-hmm. So that's that's why my number one goal was to bring the fan back together. Mm. And then we did that, and then a couple of years went by. And-, and then you sold, and now you have a new venture, BNA, mm-hmm. Digital Nomad Adventures. Yes. I'll be one of your customers. Thank you. You can, uh, you can let me on for free, and I'll pretend to be a customer. <laughs> <laughs> Don't just do that anymore. <laughs> Go on, then. Tell me about DNA. So DNA came about during COVID. I When I went back to Thailand to reopen the resort, so after all of the staff, the True Travels crew moved out of the resort, we just closed it. There was no point in having it open. So there was about three core members of staff from Tiki mm-hmm. who just stayed there and they looked after the place. Like they lived there anyway, right? There's staff houses and stuff around, around the property. And they stayed there, they looked after the place and they were just legends so when i moved back to thailand i was like right the first thing i'm going to do now is reopen tiki beach to make sure we can pay these people and then give them a salary back and uh so i did but there was still no tourists coming into thailand so the only people we could market to were domestic tourists and the digital nomads because mm-hmm. a lot of digital nomads stayed in thailand right so they were doing like an extension on tourist visas. when you started your whole um journey with the digital nomads then or was that that's more of a recent thing hey? i'd never heard of them yeah like, there was people that worked online for sure but i'd never heard of this digital nomad terminology right um and i certainly wouldn't have considered myself one i'd have just considered myself travel entrepreneur but yeah. as it happens i guess i became a digital nomad over the years because yeah. i grew a company that i could r- run from my laptop anywhere in the world yeah and so we started trying to make the resort more digital nomad friendly. And with a lot of the dead space around the restaurant area. That was during COVID. COVID. Yeah, yeah, when COVID was still yeah. happening. Like we reopened, I think it was like January, what would it have been, January 2021, mm. when we reopened the hostel. I say hostels, not hostels, resort. resort. <laughs> when we reopened the resort. <laughs> um, yeah, the, 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 the thing was there was no tourists. So we were yeah. like, domestic, travelers, or digital nomads. So we turned a lot of the space into co-working spaces. We built a little gym in the garden. We tried to make it so that, yeah, you want to work from paradise, live on the beach, you can come and stay here. Very cheap. Sounds great. Eat here, drink here, work out here, work here, socialize here, do everything you need to do. Mm. So that got me thinking, this digital nomad scene is growing. Yeah. Like 
especially during COVID, right? All the offices yeah. closed, everyone yeah. could work from home. That's when I kind of became a digital nomad myself. Exactly. COVID, that's one great thing COVID did to the world. It, it, <laughs> yeah. it blew up digital nomadism. Yeah, exactly. And it made people realize you didn't have to be in an office in order to be yeah, productive. Exactly. And it even made the companies realize you didn't necessarily yeah, need an office. corporate got onto that. Exactly. So there was this wave coming or this wave accelerating. And I thought, hmm, maybe we could find an opportunity here to get into this into this area. And I, I realized that myself, I'd become one mm. by accident. And, and really, I think that digital, I was talking to somebody here earlier about this. I really think that the digital nomad is an evolution of a backpacker. It is. In it, a way. It really is. Just think about it. When you're backpacking around the world, right, you want to stay traveling for as long as possible. Yes. How do you do that? You go and pick fucking fruit yeah. in Australia. <laughs> Well, you go and work in a bar or a yeah. club yeah. or you go and do some job that you don't necessarily want to do. Yeah. But you have Just to, to keep do it traveling, to sustain the to travel. live the lifestyle. Exactly. Because there was no smartphones or digital marketing mm-hmm. positions or like coding positions that you could mm-hmm. do from anywhere in the world yeah. or like any of this shit. So nowadays, technology is such that you can do that. Yeah. And what are digital nomads? People that want to travel. Exactly. Definitely. Yeah. So I feel like that's the they're kind of like you start as a backpacker and you graduate to become a digital nomad, I feel yeah. like. Because almost everyone at all these conferences we go to was a backpacker back in the day sure. or loved that lifestyle. Exactly. It's and people just who thought, love well, let tra- me get like a better paying job and then I can stay in resorts instead of hostels. But I still want the vibe of a hostel. I just want the private room. Exactly. You know? <laughs> Basically. That's exactly. I don't want to get 20 hour buses. I want to fly. Yeah, yeah I want to fly. Or fly mm. business. <laughs> Go on. Tell us about flying business. I've been hearing a lot about business a lot. So I've never flown business. Tell me about your first time flying business. Go on then, Joe. Shit. My first time flying business was when I was working for Virgin Atlantic as a mm-hmm. student. I had no. Yeah. no Are oh, those flights to Australia they gave you? Been? No, no, oh. no, 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 not them one. It was yeah. when I was going to Chicago with my dad to, for my great aunt's 80th birthday in right. Chicago. Your great aunt is from Chicago. My dad's cousin and that side of the family moved over to Chicago when we were uh, very young. You might have a bit of Serbian in you. I have a bit of well, Chicago is the biggest Serbian city outside of Belgrade. Do you know that? Oh, yeah. There you go. I did not know. You that. might have zero point one percent. Possibly. <laughs> uh, so we flew over there, and my dad paid for the flights. And then yeah. I spoke to the man, my manager at Gatwick at the time, uh-huh. who had a word with the American Airlines manager at Heathrow, and got us upgraded for free. And uh, at that point, I vowed it was so good. Yeah, like it just. Yeah, it's so much better. I almost feel bad. Like, it's like, fucking, how can they treat someone so much better just because they paid a few extra quid for their flight? Like, more than a few extra. It's more than a few extra, but even so, it's like, yeah. you don't treat some people like that and then some people like that just because yeah. they paid more for the flight. Anyway, I vowed never to fly economy ever again. Yeah. And then I flew economy for the next 15 years because I couldn't afford to fly business. <laughs> but you're coming back. You're Coming back, back yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, no, Jesus, I wouldn't do it all the time now because mm. it's fucking expensive. Yeah. But when there's a long, horrible yeah. flight with lots of stops and stuff, oh, it's God. sometimes it's worth it. Yeah, I think so. Sometimes it's worth it. I think I'm going to try and convince my parents to fly business from Australia to Serbia because that's why they don't come. Because that the econo- the econo- the economy flight is yeah. just oh, it's horrific. It's horrific, and it's it's soul destroying. It's the whole experience. Yeah. The experience at the airport. Yeah, Jesus, like. Geez, like my on the way back from Brazil to Thailand, mm. after we get to Brazil mm. on this cruise, mm. 
We're there for a few weeks, and then I've got to fly back to Sun. It's 36 hours with a nine-hour layover in Doha. So brutal, bro. I was like, I am not doing that kind of thing. No. Have you seen the Doha business lounge? <laughs> just to get into the business lounge at Doha is worth pictures. it. <laughs> Fucking unreal. <laughs> and it just makes the whole experience, like, pleasant. Mm. You don't mind. You get to the airport. Mm. You don't have to wait in the queue. Mm. They usher you through security and say there's a fast-track lane. Mm. You go in the business lounge. Mm. You get on the face. Yeah. It's, it's, it's baller it's, as hell. It's not fair. It's not fair is what it All is, is but whatever, man. Sometimes it could be done. We've got one other little story that we forgot to mention. You were an undefeated fighter in Thailand, don't you? <laughs> Go on, Joe. Oh, Fighting Joe Fallon. You make it sound so much cooler than it actually is. <laughs> so much cooler. So Muay Thai, right? Thai boxing. It's the okay. national sport of Thailand. Everybody it's like does MMA it. or something. Sort of. I mean, it's, it's what MMA fighters learn when they're doing their stand-up. So MMA is like on the ground, standing up. Muay Thai is just boxing, but you can use elbows, knees, kicks, as well as just your hands. Uh -huh, okay. But you can't go to ground and wrestle. MMA, you're wrestling and shit, rolling around on the floor. Um, but I, I don't know. I just wanted a way to stay fit. When I got to Thailand, I discovered Muay Thai and did it as a, as a, as a hobby, as a fitness mm. thing. And then after doing it for some time, my instructors and his family and my friends were like, when are you going to fight? When are you going to fight? I was like, no. I have absolutely no interest in getting my face rearranged by some Muay Thai champ. <laughs> no chance. I'm not doing it. Absolutely not doing it. I don't know what happened. Something happened that made me go, do you know, I think one of the tours, it was in the early days of True Travels as well, and one of the tours didn't have enough booking and had no booking, so we just cancelled it. So there was like a six-week window mm -hmm. where I had time to train properly, mm -hmm. and I don't know, I just got convinced to do it. And so stupidly, I signed up for this for this fight. It was about two days before a full moon pie. It was in Hadri in the stadium, so wow. it was packed. The, the stadium was packed, and I was absolutely shitting myself. And, uh, yeah, somehow I managed to win the fight, and then I retired undefeated. That's the way to go. You said in the first second of the fight, you got kicked in the face. Yeah, I got kicked in the face in the first second. But and my trainer thought I was going to get knocked out in the yeah. first second, and he would yeah. have to be embarrassed in front of all these other Thai friends who were training. <laughs> but, uh, no, they told me I was fighting a Thai beginner. Okay. And I don't know, in my head, I just thought, yeah, I could probably win this. I'm just going to stick to boxing. Like probably a little bit bigger than this guy. Like I'll just, I'll just be all right. So I went into the ring and I, I put my hand up to touch gloves and the bell had already gone. And I stupidly stood there for a second too long. He wasn't going to touch my glove. He mm. decided to kick me in the face mm. over the top of the glove. Mm. So yeah, I very, 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 very nearly got knocked out in the first second of the first round. Somehow I survived the... But that would have floor, been incredibly embarrassing. That would have been fucking embarrassing. You know, how many <laughs> people were in the audience there? Like, like, yeah, that would have been so bad. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, I managed to... to then he was like, right, he's nearly knocked out, so he just came at me with everything. Mm -hmm. I was just getting out of the way. All mm -hmm. the boxing training went out the window. I was mm -hmm. just like dodging. Yeah, yeah that's just... just yeah. Using it all changes up my first. Yeah. 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 It's like Mike Tyson says, everyone has a plan to so get punched in the face. <laughs> 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 And I, I had a plan till I got kicked in the face. Yeah. And um, yeah, the first two rounds, I was just surviving, mm. ducking and diving and trying to get out of the way, like hit him with a couple of jabs, mm. like to do something. Mm. And then the third round, I was like, oh my God, I'm so tired. There's no way I can possibly hurt him anymore. I've not got the energy to hurt someone with a punch or a kick. Mm. I was like throwing half-fast kicks, just trying to keep him at distance. 
And because he'd kicked me in the face in the first round, it was obviously a dirty move. All the crowd were well on my side. Mm-hmm. So everyone's like cheering oh, for yeah, me. Yeah, no. It was like a rocky moment. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> back around Adrian. No, no. <laughs> not really. But yeah, I don't know. He went for like a big elbow in the third round. I just moved out of the way and then just cracked him with a knee in the ribs. Uh-huh. And he just, he went, it was weird, right? Because I'd never done this before. I didn't know what to do. Yeah. He went limp, like in my arms in the, in the clinch. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what do I do? Do I drop him? Do I lie him down? <laughs> so I just let go and he went down. I'm thinking, please don't get up. Please don't get uh-huh. up. Please don't get up. And he didn't get up. And then the referee comes and raised my arm. And I was like, oh, I'm never doing that again. Get me out of the room. <laughs> so yeah, that was my one and, now, and only experience. And you met Popper Muay Thai fight. you made about, 70 euros. Yeah, yeah. Five. So it was a professional one. So they uh-huh. paid me for yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Seven is about, about 70 quid. Of 50, quid, 50 or 60 quid they paid me. That's a pretty hard go. Mm. And do you know what? I actually hustle. didn't even want the money. I told him, I was like, mm. don't even give it me. Just bet it on me to win. Yeah. So at least I'll get double that if yeah. I win. Yeah. And then at the end, I was like, right, give it me. Then he was like, I tried to bet it on you, but no one would take the bet. So there's your 50 quid or 70 euros <laughs> or whatever. So yeah, I retired undefeated. I got one more question. Um, like as a Brit in Thailand, I mean, you've been there for a long time. Does Thailand feel like home for you more than the UK even? Do you still feel like a foreigner? You're a foreign, foreign is the word for foreigner, right? Yeah, I think you'll always feel like a foreigner to some extent in Thailand because mm-hmm. the cultures and stuff are so different. Mm. Um, even yeah. though you speak the language. I don't speak the language well enough to mm. be like, like I couldn't go and do like government papers and shit. Sure. No, I still don't always understand everything that's going on around me. Yeah. Like, you'll always feel like a bit of a foreigner, but I, mm. I mean, I still prefer it to England. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. I don't like England too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I think we've had an incredible discussion. Thank you for sharing your time. I guess this is the time in the podcast to vlog yourself a bit how can they find you if they're interested in cultural nomad adventures i'll probably be on one of these so yeah you yeah you should, you, well. should, you should so did you know in fact we didn't even talk about that much because we went off on random tangents you, but, you, got uh, more to, you got more to hard sell i'm just gonna the hard sell you can explain what it is right so we did the adventure tour thing for many years with with true travels yeah during covid i thought okay there's this opportunity here for digital nomad companies mm-hmm. to, to come out and do services for digital nomads mm-hmm. so i thought i'm going to combine like what's out there already there's co-working mm-hmm. and there's retreats yes right this thing we're on now the nomad cruise is fucking unique this right? is a conference this is a conference on a boat in the yeah. middle of the atlantic ocean yeah. that's cool and that's why it's successful yeah because it's different it's something yeah. that nobody else does mm-hmm. but there are millions of digital nomad retreats and co-working and co-living things all over the world now i thought i'm not going to do that what I'm going to do is I'm going to combine what I'm good at, what I'm passionate at, which is adventure tours, is connecting people through adventure tours, through mm-hmm. travel. Mm-hmm. Because I've seen how quickly people make bonds when they're traveling together, yeah. when they're going, sharing experiences, and they're eating, sleeping, living, breathing, mm-hmm. experiencing amazing adventures and amazing destinations. They form bonds at absolute light speed. And also, I've been to a few of these retreats and stuff, and some of them are cheesy as fuck. And they do all these icebreakers and stand in a circle and hug each other and shit and like that's not me i'm sure they're great for some people but Mm. it's just not my cup of tea so i was like right how can we bring the benefits of a like business or personal development retreat into an adventure tour and get rid of all the cheesiness i was like actually if you just bring it in with an adventure tour and do your retreat stuff and do your sessions and your masterminds as you're traveling through these beautiful places 
you don't need to do any of the cheesy shit because it happens naturally. Yeah. Because you're traveling together, you're having a good time, right? And you're getting to know people because you're sharing boat rides and you're sharing beers on the beach and you're just spending time together. Like you don't need to do any of the forced fun. Mm. And when you're forming bonds at light speed with people and you make really good friendships, then you're going to want to help each other out more. You know, if you like someone, you're going to go out, the, out your way to help them. And the whole point of DNA is that we're bringing people together and connecting people through travel with the aim of helping each other achieve our goals. So rather than just having a good time, which we do, obviously, as it's like the, it's the given, that's just what we're doing, we're helping each other achieve our goals. So, Yeah, it's about building the, your personal network as well as having to play time. And having a good time. Yeah. So rather than paying a few thousand pounds to go on a retreat for a week, mm. I pay a few thousand pounds to go on an adventure tour, which is going to be a fucking amazing time. You're going to get all the same benefits yeah. out of it anyway. I think it's and much better. You're going to be better friends with the people anyway. Yeah. I've been to networking events with 100 people on mm. it. I might be good friends with four of them mm. by the end of the week. I might know 20 of them, mm. but none of them 20 people are going to go out their way to help mm. learn them that well. First trip we ran with DNA, we had 13 people, including myself. And like, by day three, everyone was like, right, how can I help you with your business? They're sitting down with each other, teaching each other skills, planning collaborations. I got a new mentor from it almost. There was like one lady who's like this venture capitalist yeah. who like it's seriously experienced in business. And like, she's like, yeah, I want to help you guys. I want to help you guys because we've had a great time. We like each other. And yeah, that was it. Amazing. So, your network is your network. Your network is your network. Exactly. <laughs> and another quote by an old friend of mine, George Paniades. Go on then. Happiness is not the result of success. Success is the result of happiness. Boom, baby. I like it. I like it. Digital Nomad Adventures. Yeah. You can find us, digitalnomadadventures.com. Instagram, I think, is at digitalnomadadventures underscore. I mean, yeah, Google it. You'll find it. It's all out there. Mm -hmm. And come and stay at Tiki Beach. If you're in Copenhagen, the Digital Nomad I might live at Tiki Beach for a while. Sweet. I, I think come I live at your place there. in uh, Nice for a bit too. Do a house swap. We will. <laughs> and you're also planning your own Digital Nomad Fest. So you're not calling it a Digital Nomad Fest. Sure. It? Well, we're going to call it Beach Meets. Um, and it's basically we're rather than just doing the adventure tour thing, which I think will be cool and mm. I think will be will be we'll get traction and we'll be attracted to people. I want to try a few different trip styles. So Although I said I wasn't going to do retreats, I was like, actually, I will do retreats, but I'm not going to do boring, fucking fake, yes. fun retreats. Yeah. I'm going to do extreme sports retreats. Yeah. No, so close like, your eyes and breathe. Let's just skydive. Yeah. No, no, <laughs> no, like, hugging. And, and, well, not unless you want to. You can hug if you want to. I'm not, not going to be forced to hug. Mate, I wouldn't. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah. So we're going to do extreme sports retreats. There's going to be like 10 days, kite surfing, Sri Lanka, mm -hmm. come and meet a bunch of other nomads and entrepreneurs, network, co work, and kite surf. Amazing. That in my idea, that is my idea of a fucking good retreat. <laughs> yeah. Right? And I do that anyway, you know, it's like making this business fun. Like I, I've, I've thought to myself a few times, why am I doing this? I've just sold my company. I've got the resort in Thailand. I can just chill on the beach and wakeboard and kite surf and do the shit that I'd love to do. Why have I gone through the, put myself in the, under the pressure of starting a new business? Yeah, now? it's interesting. You're in the position. You're in the, the dream position. You've got a lot of money. You have a resort, your own resort to sit on the beach however long you want. I know. But that's not enough. A new start. Yeah, but it's not enough. That's the thing that people don't get if they're not in your position. Do you, you know, know what? what I, mean? I wouldn't say it's not enough. Like, I'm appreciative of my life. Like, I've managed yeah. to forge this dream lifestyle for myself out yeah. of just some weird pipe dream that some backpackers yeah. had because we didn't like London. 
right? <laughs> so I forged this dream lifestyle. And, and also, there's an important thing which, which we should mention is that it's because we didn't follow what society told us to do. Yes. Right? It's making that leap and making that leap and having faith. And to me, doing it was less of a risk mm. than not doing it. Yes. Everyone's like, oh, it's such a big risk. You're going to go to Thailand. You're going to give up your job. You're going to give up your girlfriend, your house in London, and you're going to move to Thailand and do this thing. What a risk. I was like, well, do you know what? It's fun. And if it doesn't work, I'll go back to London. What have you got to lose? You're going on an adventure. Exactly. You don't lose anything on the adventure. How much would I have regretted it if I hadn't oh, done it? Oh, my God. And I was still, imagine if I was an accountant. Oh, oh my now, God. I wouldn't be in the middle of the Atlantic on no. this amazing ship with these amazing yeah. people having a chat with my old friend Milan on his new podcast. Like, it would never have happened. No. So, like, taking that leap and just doing it. Mm. Is is what got me to, to to having a nice lifestyle and forging the lifestyle of my dreams, right? And now with DNA, I just want to show other people it's possible. Mm. Just be like, mm. right, come, we'll all go traveling together. It doesn't matter what stage of your nomad journey you're at, whether mm. you're a venture capitalist with hundreds of millions in in funds being managed, mm. or whether you're someone who just died, or you're a social media influencer, or you're a coach that coaches, coaches that coaches, coaches. <laughs> it doesn't even. <laughs> it doesn't even matter what you do, yeah, right? Yeah. It's, it's, it's possible to, to form your dream lifestyle by yeah. going against the grain, by doing what you're passionate about, by giving people an amazing experience and by forming deep bonds with people who are going to help you get there. And with DNA, it's just about showing people that and having a good time. Like, yes, I've put myself under this pressure of, of starting a new company and trying to make it succeed, but that's why I'm doing the kite surfing stuff. And mm. the beach meets, we're going to have a mm. conference in April in Thailand, in Copenhagen. And I'm going to bring loads of cool people together that I've met around the world at different places. And be like, yo, come to oh, that yeah. conference I'm in Copenhagen. We're on the beach. We're going to have some cool pies. We're going to have some cool keynote speakers. Oh, We're going to have some cool I'm, networking I'm, stuff. I'm hyped, bro. Sure. I'm yeah. hyped. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Imagine how many podcast guests you're going to get. <laughs> so, yeah, it's For about sure. different travel styles. And it's about making it fun, right? I'm not looking to put too much pressure on myself now because I don't mm. need to. Mm. I'm looking to do things that are fun. Mm. Uh, I'm going to go kite surfing in Sri Lanka with my friends in, in July anyway. Yeah. So I might as well bring some other cool people yeah. with me and see if we can make it. A- I mean, you're at the dream lifestyle that some people would conceive of now when they don't have it, but you still, there's still space to keep dreaming even deeper. Let's say you're, yeah, you're sure. going to, you're going to kill it, bro. You're going to like Nirvana level 12. <laughs> so, <man>. You feel like. <laughs> Talk to you in like five years of the podcast. You're just like floating on a cloud. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what? It's going to be fun. And um, if it isn't, I'll stop doing it. I'll do something else. For sure. Joe Fallon, mate. Should we leave it at that? Let's leave it at that. Anything else to say? Don't think so. Thank you for tuning into the podcast, Hostel. I'm your host, Milan Milutinovic. This guy right here is a Joe Fallon, my man. We're talking to you from the Digital Nomad Cruise, NC12. In the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. We're in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. I've got a studio in my backpack and we're recording it. We've managed to sneak into this little conference room. We took over this conference room. (laughs) I didn't even book it, but that's where we've done it. And this is how it all happens. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you, Milan. What a cool conversation we had there in the middle of the Atlantic very very cool and um thank you so much for making it to the end of this episode and i hope that joe's story was inspiring and worth hearing he's definitely opened my eyes to some uh opportunities and potential things in thailand and in asia a region that i haven't 
explored all that much really but um joe's given me a very good reason to come to thailand and um partake in some of his digital nomad adventures and um just uh wanted to let you guys know again if you're interested at all in what joe is doing right now go to digitalnomadadventures.com check out the tours that he's got running uh check it out on instagram as well digital nomad adventures um you will be seeing me on some of these adventures and also he's doing a conference a kind of a digital nomad festival himself he's doing in thailand in april uh beach meets i think he's calling it a non-conference so it's a non-conference conference which um isn't confusing at all but if you purchase any digital nomad adventures product make sure you use the promo code podcast hostel that promo code is podcast hostel just let them know that i sent you that's the best way to support this channel and to support me in what i'm doing i hope you guys get a lot of value out of this content that i'm creating i'm trying to have fun and have a good time but i also want to make sure if you've just spent an hour and a half listening to me and my guests that you get a lot of value and um, if you think me and joe are cool guys and you want to hang out with us let's do it together in thailand thank you very much for tuning in to the podcast hustle that's what's up baby take it easy